This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Let's talk about propofol. Why does it take so long for some patients to wake up after prolonged propofol infusions? Why do patients lose so much muscle mass during that time, even if they appear to have the muscle mass to move? Why are they so weak or unable to move after propofol? For decades, and especially in the era of COVID, we have hailed propofol as the holy grail. While it does improve outcomes when compared to traditional benzodiazepines, there are many considerations of continuous propofol infusions that we are often unaware of. We cannot appropriately use this wonderful agent if we cannot respect its full impact. This episode, we will hear from a pharmacology expert about the big picture of our beloved propofol. Adiz, thank you so much for joining us. Will you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate what you do. And I feel like you have a podcast unlike any other. So thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Um, but yeah, my name is Adis Carrick. I graduated pharmacy school in 2012, worked for four years as a staff pharmacist. And then I decided to go back to do a pharmacy residency because I felt like there was just so much more that I needed to know and I needed to learn in order to take care of patients. So started my first year residency in 2016. And then I went on to complete a PGY2 critical care pharmacy residency at the same site, eventually earning my board certification in critical care pharmacy. So besides that, I am an ED pharmacist. I used to have more shifts in the ICU than I did than I do now. And that's mostly because of COVID and some staffing changes. But from time to time I also staff our medical ICU, our surgical ICU, and our neurocritical care unit. And besides that, I have a podcast as well. It's called ERRX, which is an ER and ICU podcast. And then I also run a website, ERRXpodcast.com, and an Instagram, an Instagram page with uh, the same name. Which is why I snagged you, because I kept seeing really good things from your account. Like you were the man for the job to discuss some really important things. And before we dive into some of the pharmacology things, you and I have had some really good chats about the culture that you're coming from, your ICU experience, and kind of what pharmacy's role has been in helping lead sedation and mobility practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We tell us a little about that. I will. Yeah. You know, I'm really excited about, you know, sharing the culture that I have at my site. I feel like we have a very fantastic very guideline-based and patient-focused view on sedation at my site. So we've managed to have all the providers, pharmacists, and nurses just really closely follow the PAD or PAD guidelines, and now there's the PADIS guidelines. So I'm very lucky to be at the site. And another thing is, you know, part of our, our culture overall, and especially as it relates to sedation, 
is that pharmacists get to play a huge role, you know? So on the daily, the pharmacists are gonna be bugging the team about weaning sedation, getting patients off of continuous infusions, and then just discontinuing any and all unnecessary medications. So I'm sure some of the nurses listening to this are probably annoyed with me and, and with my pharmacy staff and, and rightfully so, because you know we don't spend as much time at bedside, obviously, as the nurses do. And more often than not, the nurses do have a decent reason to keep patients more deeply sedated or to keep sedatives on. But I just want to stress how, how much sedation and the culture is a team effort. So if a nurse tells us like, hey, Adis, we, we can't wean the sedation because they need it for X, Y, Z, we trust the nurse's clinical judgment, you know, and then we'll just harass them about it the next day and see if the patient status has changed. So I think, you know, besides just our direct interventions that we have daily with the ICU team, we've also, you know, harnessed technology and the EPIC system to just make it very easy and clear for all of our providers, residents, and the multitude of rotators that come through our site. We make it easy for them to order sedation. And I think this is also key in, you know, having a site that is on board with, with you know, appropriate sedation practices. So for example, we created an order panel in Epic that walks providers through picking appropriate sedatives post-intubation. So it's really easy. Anybody can do it. And the order panel follows, strictly follows guideline recommendations. You know, so first of all, the order panel says in bright red letters, you know, our RAS goal is negative one to positive one for most all patients, unless you have an exception to this rule, which I'm sure maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. And then we start with PRN or as needed bolus dosing of opioids. So fentanyl or dilated. And then we allow the nurse to request an opioid infusion only if they can't meet RAS goals after two hours of PRN bolus. So then, you know, after the bolus dosing, then you start the opioid infusion and then it'll say, you know, step two, uh, you're still not at your RAS goals with an opioid infusion. You can move on to the addition of Presidex and propofol. And I know we're going to talk a lot about propofol in this episode, so I won't get too much into the weeds with it. But even moving on to that second line agent, we have very strict guidelines and recommendations on how to use propofol. So for example, we max propofol at 40 to 50 mics per kg per minute, which is much lower than most sites. Mm -hmm. um, and this is just to avoid all the nasty side effects that are associated with its long-term use. And then, you know, you and I talked about this a little before we started recording, but we also immediately discontinue the propofol if patients get hypotensive. So we almost never will start a vasopressor just to keep someone on propofol. I almost want and, you to see it louder for the people in the back. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. No, we never start a vasopressor just to keep someone on propofol. There's obviously exceptions to this. You know, things like if the patient is in status epilepticus and just really needs deep sedation and no other agent is working or they have contraindications to benzodiazepines or whatever the case may be, we will rarely on occasion put somebody on a vasopressor to keep them on high-dose propofol, but we think about it every day and everyone on the team hates it. You know, everyone feels uncomfortable with the fact that we're doing that. Hmm. But in my four years at my side, I've only done that maybe once or twice. It's a very, very rare occurrence. Um, where when you discuss yeah. and you talk to people from other sites throughout different parts of the country and the world, they almost look surprised that I would question <laughs> starting a vasopressor for propofol because it's so normal, yeah. natural, innate. I mean, 
patients intubated, so of course you have to sedate them. And granted, propofol is better than benzodiazepines. Absolutely. And yet I love that it's pharmacy saying, stop. <laughs> let's really yeah. think this. If this is causing harm, then let's reevaluate rather than let's just keep compensating for it because we love it so much. Absolutely. I think like one of the 10 commandments of pharmacy is to never, you know, start a medication to treat another medication side effects. Mm. And with propofol, that's exactly what you're doing. And, you know, the sad thing is, you know, you go up on propofol and then you end up going up on the vasopressor and you're just kind of chasing your tail with that combination when the smartest thing to do would be to wean off propofol, use a different agent and get them off the vasopressor. Because now you're on two medications that can cause pretty significant harm if used long-term and at high doses. And tell us again, vasopressors are not benign. No, no, absolutely not. No drug is benign. Drugs are safe and, and effective if used appropriately and at the lowest dose and the lowest duration as possible. But, you know, vasopressors and propofol, you know, they come with um, a whole host of side effects and, and um, adverse reactions that can happen. So when you have a patient in septic shock and then you're giving propofol, how much does that contribute to having to add in additional vasopressors and how much right. more fluid are we giving erroneously because of the effects of propofol? So yeah, that's spot on. Yep. yep. And how did that change exactly. come to come to be? Who? Yeah. So, you know, I want to say with the pharmacists and this was obviously before my time coming onto my site, but I had two, you know, fantastic pharmacy preceptors in the medical ICU and the surgical ICU both of whom have been practicing in critical care medicine for, you know, 15 to 20 years plus. And every day on rounds, if, you know, there was a resident or somebody who was able to sneak in a vasopressor for someone on propofol, I mean, we would just stop rounds and, and you know, the pharmacist would usually put in a medivent for wow. something like that. And so I think they, you know, probably started that whole mindset of this doesn't make sense. We cannot keep patients on propofol if they need a vasopressor. So I believe it started with pharmacy, but now it's so ingrained in our culture that a lot of the providers, you know, make you sick, you neural care providers are also very, very on board with that being a contraindication to the use of propofol. That's incredible. I love that it's maybe started as one or two people from exactly any discipline that mm -hmm. finally brought on the pick a picture and everyone holds everyone accountable because we're mm -hmm. all working towards the same goal, but we bring in Absolutely. our own elements. Oh, Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that. So let's talk about propofol. Mm -hmm. I know that we are deeply in love with it because we come from this culture of, and this history of benzodiazepine use, which, sure. which PS with COVID, how much more did benzodiazepine use are you seeing with your, you have such a good culture. Yeah. Has benzodiazepine, continuous benzodiazepine infusions snuck their way back into the COVID units? You know, I would say maybe a little bit more than usual. I think with COVID, you know, the thing that COVID didn't allow us to do, you know, especially starting the ED was starting with those PRN boluses for nursing. So in the midst of COVID, we kind of did away with the whole, well, let's just get 50 of fentanyl every one hour as needed. And then start an infusion after two hours, because we didn't want the nurses going in and out of patient COVID positive patient rooms yeah. every five minutes to keep a patient sedated. So that was one big change with COVID is especially when we intubated patients in the ED, we would pretty much automatically start a fentanyl or a dilaudid infusion just for nurse safety more than anything. 
we would then add on propofol. Last line at my site, you know, is, is a benzo. But I don't think that we use too much more benzos than, than we did at baseline. We still were pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, if we did, it would just be, you know, PRN boluses one at a time. No, very rare use of continuous infusions unless it was, you know, truly indicated. Because I was hearing and still do hear about a lot of Versed drips. Some people, especially nurses, felt like that was the only option and they've fallen in love with it Mm -hmm. because it's so effective and really knocking patients out. Which I see, I yeah, see you, yeah. and I think it's it effective. Out. It's effective at doing that. Yeah, it, it is, and that's what we <laughs> love because we don't have the big picture. I don't think anyone wants to mm-hmm. cause harm, so it's sure. nice to hear a facility that started out with a good culture, how to make some adjustments for mm-hmm. the unique challenges of COVID, sure. but you try to stay true to those values in your team. Absolutely. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So theoretically, we were using so many benzodiazepines throughout the 90s, early 2000s. It was one of our only options for sedation. When the ventilators were so uncomfortable, they couldn't synchronize with the ventilator and their with that archaic te- technology. That was our only option. And yet we started seeing how much harm benzodiazepines cause. Then propofol came to be. And then we noticed how much better outcomes were with propofol. So now that's our go-to and we love it. I sure. worry though, that because we love it so much in comparison to benzodiazepines that we negate or are oblivious to the harm that propofol also can use, and therefore we use it often inappropriately because we don't know. So tell us a little bit about propofol from a pharmacist perspective. Sure. I mean, you know, to, you know, one of your questions was, you know, why do we, why are we so in love with propofol? And I think before we start getting into some of the bad things, maybe let's talk a little bit about why people use it, why people think it's a good drug and and why in some cases it is a good Mm -hmm. drug. So there's, there's a few reasons that I think of, you know, when I talk about propofol, when we use it correctly and for short periods of time, it can be a great agent. And one, one reason why, you know, we're using more propofol is because, you know, to this day, um, you know, we're still not hundred percent confident in what the best agent for sedation is. You know, we know per guidelines that we should always start with A1 or analgesia first sedation. And we generally know that we should avoid benzodiazepines But beyond that, it's really hard to compare the effects and benefits and risks of say like a fentanyl versus a hydromorphone versus Presnex versus propofol. And I think propofol just kind of snuck up, kind of snuck in there, like you were saying, 
just as a great addition or alternative to opioids um, and benzos, just given its relative safety when we compare it to things like we used to use back in the day, like barbiturates and high-dose Ativan and high-dose Versed. So I think that's one reason why. I think the other reason is just it's ease of use. So it is generally pretty easy to use. So at my site, Propofol is readily available in the Pixis or automated dispensing machines in the ER. So it's really easy for a nurse or pharmacist just to grab a bottle of Propofol and hang it at bedside. You know, we don't have to wait the 15 to 20 minutes that it can take pharmacy to make you a opioid infusion. And at least for IMAT, it's not a controlled substance. So it makes it easier for nurses to pull and waste if needed. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, it does have some, some pretty good pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic um, properties. As you know, it, it modulates the GABA receptors. So it has a lot of things that are good for patients at times. So it's got amnestic effects, anxiolytic effects. It's an anticonvulsant. And we also don't have to adjust its dose for hepatic or renal dysfunction. And it has very few drug-drug interactions. It's also got a very quick onset and offset, um, again, if used for very short durations at very low doses. So I think, you know, when, when you compare it to something like a barbiturate, something like you said we used to do in the, in the archaic old times, or a benzo, it does sound like a good agent. But of course, we have better agents um, like opioids that are safer to use and, and more recommended in the guidelines. Absolutely. And, and I think you make a good point. There's a difference in effects of propofol and risks of propofol mm-hmm. by duration of infusion. Okay. So we compare our experiences under sedation, maybe in surgery to mm-hmm. patients that have it for COVID, ARDS, it's extended periods of time for days to weeks. Absolutely. So we assume that they're having similar experiences though, what we had, you know, didn't remember mm-hmm. a thing, didn't feel a thing. It was awesome. And that is a great use for propofol. Mm-hmm. It, is, it has so many awesome uses, mm-hmm. and yet it has a different story when it's used for this extended period of time, like we're seeing with COVID patients, especially. And so let's go to like the, the duration. You said mm-hmm. it has a quick mm-hmm. on and off mm-hmm. onset and off. For example, the wake and walk and ICU, we get patients from other facilities that have been deeply sedated, hopefully on propofol. We're usually mm-hmm. hoping that that's what they've been given. Because when they've been given really? versed, because so, some sure. neighboring facilities in these rural areas are still giving high dose versed drips, and we know that that's going to be a lot more difficult to deal with the mm-hmm. delirium. Because once they come through our doors, mm-hmm. now it's rehab time. No matter how cute or critical they are, we're ready to rehab them. So if they're on a propofol drip, sometimes we turn it off and they don't wake up, and right. it takes. And it seems to depend on the person, the duration, the dose. So why why does it vary so much? Um, after yeah. they've been on it for a certain amount of time, why does it change person to person? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, propofol, it's a lipophilic drug, which is a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's like a dual-edged sword. So it has a very quick onset of about less than one minute. And the reason is that lipophilicity, so lipophilic drugs can cross that blood-brain barrier and get to the site of action faster. So Keeping in mind, though, that with prolonged use, all of these drugs that are lipophilic, like propofol, and especially in our overweight or obese patients, those that have maybe more fatty tissue, what happens is that agent leaches out into the adipose or into that fatty tissue, and this kind of hangs out. 
And so with prolonged use, you know, days and, and high doses, that drug like propofol leaches into that fatty tissue and adipose tissue. And then once you turn it off, sometimes what can happen is like you were saying, you'll expect your patient to wake up in about five to 10 minutes, which is the usual duration of action of propofol. But what'll happen is it'll start leaching out of that fatty and adipose tissue back into the central circulation. And now it has an effect again. And so there's a lot of reasons why this can happen. One reason is, you know, it's metabolized by the liver. So there might be some liver effects. So patients with maybe liver disease might, you know, more slowly metabolize propofol. And there is also some genetic differences in just how patients metabolize drugs in general, given their CYP enzymes and a whole host of other nerdy things that we won't get into. So definitely the half-life can be extended. And, and that's kind of why we see these patients not waking up even after you turn, you turn the propofol off. I'm on a support group for survivor for survivors, but also COVID patients. So family members are coming on and asking each other, how long did it take your loved one to wake up? How long? Really? And it just makes me shudder. I just, wow. you can, I, I'm speculating, right? But it sounds like, because they're saying the sedation's off, but my loved one's not waking up. Does that mean they have brain damage? They're really concerned mm-hmm. and no one's really informing them that this, what's really going on with propofol. Absolutely. How do you tell when it's propofol not yet metabolized out of the body and hypoactive mm-hmm. delirium. Sure. Yeah. I mean, impossible, right? I mean, time and, you know, and it also depends on what other agents they were on, you know, if they were, I mean, we don't use morphine infusions, but some sites do use continuous morphine infusions, which has active metabolites. So that's another one. Say if they were on a morphine infusion and propofol together, now you have another agent that's hanging around longer than you would like. Fentanyl has some very interesting pharmacokinetics where it's pretty unpredictable after long-term use, you know, when exactly the drug is going to wear off. And then again, like you said, our, our worst enemy, those benzodiazepines definitely hang around for a long period of time. So it's really going to vary patient to patient. And, you know, I feel really bad for those family members that you were talking about, because a lot of times we don't have the answer for, is this delirium? Is this brain death? Is this just drug not metabolizing? And it's almost impossible to tell the difference as I'm sure, you know, and how many CTs are we doing on these patients? Because you have to rule out a thrombolytic event, Mm -hmm. but how often is that actually necessary or how could much could that have been prevented? And how much does that cost our system? And how much more work is that for the nurse and the respiratory therapist to have to take them down to CT just causes Mm -hmm. a lot more work and harm, but I think that would understanding how propofol metabolizes can really inspire us or move us to use it Mm -hmm. more, more cautiously. And Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. what, how should we titrate propofol? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, when we talk about titration of any drug, including propofol, you know, again, we want to focus to a goal of light sedation always. So in my institution, we do a RAS of negative one to positive one, but, you know, specifically talking about propofol, we usually start at about five to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And then we titrate by five to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute every five to 10 minutes. So at my site, we usually max it at about 40 to 50 micrograms per kilogram per minute. And another thing that we do to just reduce the amount of exposure of propofol is that we actually dose our propofol and a lot of other continuous infusions based off of an ideal body weight for patients that are overweight and obese. And so some might be thinking, well, it doesn't matter what weight you use, you titrate it to effect. 
which is true. It is titrated to an effect, but you know, given that bolus dose or starting at 10 mics per kg per minute for somebody who you put in a weight of 200 kilos versus an ideal body weight of 70, they're going to get way less drug over the three to four to five days that you're keeping the patient on propofol for. And that's a recent move that we, that we have made in our EDs and ICUs is to dose all of these lipophilic drugs based off of an ideal body weight just to reduce exposure. That is excellent. I had not thought about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And so we do it for a lot of things, vasopressors, esmolol, you know, dobutamine, propofol, ketamine. There's a continuous infusions of paralytics will also dose based off of an ideal body weight. And the reason being, you know, talking about pharmacology is these patients are, excuse me, these, some of these agents are not, first of all, you don't need to take someone's entire fatty adipose tissue into consideration when you're giving agents, right? We just need them to get to the blood brain barrier or their site of action. And then on the flip side, some other drugs, you know, unlike propofol are not lipophilic. So they don't actually leach out into our fatty adipose and they stay strictly in the central compartment. So it doesn't make sense to take a patient's entire body weight when dosing things like norepinephrine um, and, and, and vasopressin and things like that. So I think it's a great change. and I'm really excited to see if we're going to see any benefits out of it. Absolutely. And I think propofol can really sound like the bad guy, but often it's because of how we use it. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's, it's rarely the drug. It's mostly us. <laughs> right. And I have to tell people, yeah. cause I talk about how we don't, we hardly ever have patients on sedation and they wake and walk in ICU truly. Cause when you let them wake up right after intubation and they don't yeah. become delirious, then you, they really can be calm, cooperative. They're naturally irascible. zero. We can give low mm-hmm. dose clonopin, other things for, for anxiety and mobility mm-hmm. treats anxiety. Mm-hmm. We pre- prevent a lot of need for sedation by avoiding sedation to begin with. And yeah. yet when it is necessary, it's important to use it wisely right. and to the right RAS. I appreciate that on your order set. It's very clear a RAS of negative mm-hmm. one to positive one, right? Mm-hmm. That is that alone is so different than our general mm-hmm. culture throughout the ICU community. And that I think can spare a lot of harm when we don't try to get them to cross a negative three or negative four yeah. or get them there and chart as a negative one, because we all know that happens. Right. But when yes. you have watchdogs, like the pharmacists really mm-hmm. caring about that, because you know what the harm is mm-hmm. um, and communicating that throughout the team, then I think we can use these agents appropriately, but we kind of have to understand what the harm is. Cause I think mm-hmm. we assume we, as and I think a lot of nurses, I'm coming from the nursing side. I'm a nurse practitioner and I was really engrossed sure. in the nursing culture. There's very little education or discussion about what propofol really does. So can you share with us some of the harm that we're trying to prevent by using it correctly? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I just want to, you know, commend you guys for the work you're doing. I, I think, you know, I'm proud of my site, but I don't even think we're anywhere near what you guys are doing with, with no sedation. I, I mean, like that's amazing. I would love to see something like that firsthand. Lots of people are. I should. Yeah. I mean, I can count on, you know, one hand, how many times I saw like somebody on a ventilator actually walk the halls when I think, you know, all of our patients should be able to do that. But even at my site where we, where we do stress the importance of isolation, that that's still a pretty rare occurrence. So that's, that's amazing. The work you guys are doing, but yeah, going back to your question with the I guess, harms of sedation in general. Was that your question? Sedation in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we've proven through clinical trials, like time and time again, that deep sedation is harmful. 
patients end up being on ventilators longer than they need to be. They have longer lengths of ICU and um, hospital, uh, longer lengths of stay, which leads to a bigger bill for the patient and the hospital. Patients that are more deeply sedated more often develop delirium, which increases morbidity and mortality itself. And just in general, prolonged sedation and prolonged deep sedation leads to worse quality of life, worse mortality rates, and higher morbidity. And I think when we think about sedation and the harms of sedation, yes, you know, the drugs that we're giving patients can definitely cause harm. But I think the biggest disservice that we're doing for patients with deep sedation is that deep sedation makes it so our patients don't get to do something that's extremely important, and that is moving. So physical therapy, occupational therapy is very important for these patients, and it's something that they can't partake in if they're deeply sedated. And I think that is one of the biggest harms of sedation and deep sedation personally. Yeah, so that, I guess, in a nutshell, is the way I think about, you know, the, the, the severity of, of how deep sedation can, can uh, affect our patients. Yeah, I was doing a webinar with the team this morning and made the point again that our occupational physical therapists got their master's and doctorates to be able to work with these patients, not to move mm-hmm. flaccid limbs. That's right. not fully therapeutic. That's not their <laughs> full skill set. And they're not natural. able to practice at the top of their scope mm-hmm. if they have these huge barriers of sedation. It also, you know, maybe we can, we have propofol on for a week and mm-hmm. then we turn it off. And now they can't move. Right. And I think there's a lot to understand about propofol, why that happens and why now we have a whole nother week of barriers to rehabilitation and movement and why we're continuing to slide into this ICU acquired weakness because of how we use propofol. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how does propofol affect the muscles and the brain and all the things that make us who we are? Yeah. So let's talk, you know, first about, I mean, even just some common side effects of propofol, which we are all aware of. So hypotension, you know, can occur in up to 25% of the adult patients on propofol. It can cause bradycardia and it actually has a direct effect on myocytes, which actually causes them to, to reduce contractility in the muscle tissue. It can also cause elevated triglycerides, which if it gets severe enough, can lead to pancreatitis. And this is because propofol comes in a lipid emulsion. So we can't forget about, you know, those very common things that it causes. And I think most of us are aware of those things. But then we have some more uncommon side effects that your patient is at risk of if they're on higher doses or for longer durations of time. For example, one of those is PRIS or propofol-related infusion syndrome which if you look at the data happens less than 1% of the time. But if your patient does get it, their mortality rate is 30%, even up to 50%. And PRIS is one of those very dangerous side effects of propofol. And we're still trying to figure out what causes PRIS, but it's, I think more and more, we're starting to find out that it's likely caused by propofol-induced mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, specifically mitochondrial energy production and the activation of anaerobic metabolism. And so PRIS is something, again, that's associated with high doses. I think the literature will say doses of greater than 70 mics per kg per minute, which is very high, and prolonged use, so more than 48 hours. And PRIS can cause cardiovascular collapse, metabolic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, hyperlipidemia, renal failure, you name it. So that is one of the more known, you know, quote unquote, known uncommon side effects of propofol. But 
There was also some other ones. So more and more in animal and in some small human studies, we're finding out that propofol has direct negative effect on myocytes and that it's associated with myopathy and myalgias. And I think one interesting thing that you pointed out uh, to me was that propofol can induce a state of insulin resistance, which is horrible for our ICU patients uh, because they are already insulin resistant and they are already hyperglycemic. Well, how does um, that hyper- impact mortality? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the big reasons why is if you're insulin resistant, uh, you get hyperglycemic and then hyperglycemia itself is associated with mortality, infections, longer lengths of, longer lengths of stay. And in addition to that, insulin resistant it's, itself actually exacerbates muscle wasting in our patients, which in turn can lead to or worsen critical illness myopathy which is a whole nother topic on its own, but it's very dangerous for patients. And then there's even simple things that we forget about with any continuous infusion, like infusion site reactions, you know, propofol extravasates. Propofol has been associated with more infections. For one, it's an lipid emulsion, which is very conducive to the growth of bacteria. Um, it causes some paresthesias, and it's even been associated with thrombosis. So there's definitely a whole host of side effects that propofol can cause. But again, you know, it all comes back to using it for the least amount of time at the lowest dose to try to avoid some of these common and uncommon side effects. Yeah. And we love the A to F bundle and for C, the choice mm-hmm. of analgesia in parentheses, I've seen posts in a lot of, I don't know if this is part of the formal protocol, but in parentheses, I've seen, it says, when necessary, sure. which I am so happy to see, because I felt like the ADF bundle has come with this assumption that everyone that's intubated is going to be sedated. Mm-hmm. And then we have to choose the least harm and the least, but why not choose the path of best outcomes? Yeah. Why not yeah. avoid it when possible, which is more often than not, which is Absolutely. kind of the premise of, of this whole podcast, right? To say it is and only use it when it's necessary, when yeah. Oxygen consumption is a problem when you have intracranial mm-hmm. hypertension, open abdomen, severe alcohol withdrawal, those exceptions, not, I mean, intubation is not an indicator for sedation. Right. Right. And I think, you know, like I said, I think e- even a site like mine, you know, has a lot to learn from, from you guys and then your podcast, you know, I spend a lot of my time in the ER where, you know, sometimes we intubate patients with long acting paralytics like rocuronia. So we try to get sedation on because we don't want the patients to be awake and alert and paralyzed. Yeah. But I think after you're out of that ER setting, when we have a clearer picture of what's going on with you, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, why are they still on a fentanyl infusion? If they're not agitated, if they're not in status epilepticus, if they're not, you know, having any other indication for deep sedation or sedation at all, why are we even giving them anything? And I think hopefully as time goes on, I think my site and other sites are going to start to see that you can be awake on a ventilator. And as crazy as that sounds, right? Because you hear, you know, I know I have pharmacy colleagues and nursing colleagues that would say, you know, if I ever get intubated, make sure you put me on, you know, Versed, yeah. propofol, fentanyl, because I don't want to remember any of it. And I think, I think we all get this picture that it's really frightening. And I'm sure it is for some people. But I think, you know, if we were put in that situation, I think maybe it, it wouldn't be as bad as we think. Right. And I just interviewed a survivor who said, guys, the ICU is not that scary. He's a physiotherapist. Really? 
in the UK. And so he'd worked in the ICU and he said, I would have rather had been anywhere than where I was when I was sedated. Cause in his mind, he was watching his siblings be dismembered. He was extremely graphic and I, I can't even repeat what he, what he shared or what he writes in his book. But yeah, when we realized that that's the alternative, the right. ICU doesn't look so bad. Right. So it right. is deeply cultural. I mean, how, I mean, mm-hmm. why, when I was a travel mm-hmm. nurse, was I treating patients with the same diagnosis, same Apache scores so differently mm-hmm. and watching them rot and then be wheeled out of the ICU with trachs and pigs. When mm-hmm. I just come from a place where that same patient would have been awake and walking and walked their own right. body out of the ICU. It's not yeah. fair. It's not fair to no. patients. It's not. Why is it up to us to determine what's convenient to us or what we're comfortable with or what we like to do? And I know that's not the root cause of everything, right? But it it does come down to our perceptions. But when we understand what probable fall can and likely is doing, even at the molecular level and the muscular level, we really disregard muscles in the ICU. We are really all about the kidneys, the liver, the lungs, the brain, Mm -hmm. not even so much about the brain, actually, because if we were, we wouldn't we would care about delirium, right? right. <laughs> but the brain doesn't have a lab value, so it's not really relevant. So right. you don't have to care about it, right? <laughs> yeah. but, um, yeah. but if we cared about the muscles, if we could gauge the muscles, let's say mm-hmm. if they weren't sedated and they were actually getting up, then we could know what the muscles were doing. But if mm-hmm. we understood what propofol was doing to impair the muscles and how much more risk those patients are going to be to die because of the atrophy then we would really change our discussion and we would be excited to get it off and to lower the dose and to make sure that they're moving and we could actually yeah. use these good agents appropriately. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely eye-opening. And I think, you know, once you see it once, you know, somebody awake and, and maybe writing things down on a chalkboard or pointing to things or walking the halls on a ventilator, I think it's really profound the first time you see it when like, oh, they're not even getting fentanyl bumps. Like they're just getting some Tylenol and they're on the vent and they're doing fine. They're sleeping, their family's in the room. You know, those are things that have been proven to improve outcomes and to reduce delirium, you know, things like having your family in the room, you know, having the lights on during the day, lights off during the night, but if you're sedated or even deeply sedated, you miss out on all those benefits and you just are at a higher risk of delirium. Right. And I think we can use sedation, even propofol to a RAS of zero and a negative one is better than lower. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I could safely walk at a RAS of negative one. Right. So that's where my threshold is, is can they communicate with their family? Can they interact with their family? Can they, right. do we know what they need, what they're thinking, what they feel if they're not mm-hmm. RAS of negative one, mm-hmm. it's going to be easier to get them to zero, but at a zero, you can walk, we can work on delirium. And how often have you seen, mm-hmm. probably not so much in your facility, but how often are we treating delirium with sedation? Sedated, oh, with right. Sedation? Yeah. And, you know, not often, hopefully. And, you know, the other thing is how often are we treating vital signs with sedation? You know, oh, patient's tachycardic or something. Oh, they must be nervous. We need yes. to increase the infusion. So we've, you know, had providers and, and nurses say things like that. And it's just, we need some redirection of, you know, vital signs should not be used as a scale for sedation or pain, I mean, they can act as a trigger to look further into why they're tachycardic. It could be pain and, you know, anxiety, but it's not a knee-jerk reaction to go up on a protocol infusion, definitely. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I just saw a protocol from a facility wanting to improve the sedation practices, but the parameters triggered sedation use for tachycardia, for spontaneous (laughs) breaths. So if you set 
the ventilator on assist control, you put a parameter of 35, they're breathing 37, they're going to get sedated. Oh, wow. And, and my concern is, I agree with you, we need to look further into it. If they're tachycardic, why? Right. If they're spontaneously breathing, great. But if they're breathing in the 40s, why? That right. can tell us so much. Are they anxious? Are they in pain? Do they have a pneumo? Like, it, how can you fully assess the brain or the lungs if you're not seeing what they're doing underneath? And yeah. so if we're just sedating people to get full control over their function, that's mm. not quite appropriate. Right. Right. Rarely necessary. No. It, yeah. It's kind of an abuse of those agents. Mm -hmm. So anything else you would share with the IC community? No, I mean, I think I would just share with everybody that they need to check out your podcast, check out your Instagram page. Uh, do you have a website? Not for the podcast. I do for the consulting starting. <laughs> Yeah, when I stumbled across your page, I was just really excited to see it because it is such a rare thing. So, you know, I would just just encourage people to, you know, read the guidelines, look at the data, look at podcasts uh, such as yours and understand that sedation has its risks, propofol, fentanyl, all the sedatives have their risks. And at the end of the day, what's best for the patient is, is usually doing without these agents. If, if we can, there's always exceptions to the rule, you know, so I don't want to put every patient under the same umbrella, but, you know, light sedation with low doses, PR and boluses is definitely the way to go, or maybe even no sedation like you do at your site, which would be even more incredible, but uh, baby steps, baby steps. Yep. No, and it's encouraging to hear of facilities like yours, creating and maintaining that culture, wanting to work towards th those goals. And if your team or any team wants to step it up to the next level. Mm -hmm. I'd invite you to participate in my webinars. I have incorporated the research with case studies using pictures and videos from these patients. So once people see a video of a patient walking on a peep of 18, 100% with a chest tube smiling, it changes the discussion not to, is it feasible or can we, but how do we start? Right. So you're right. Mobility is the next step and you yeah. guys have the door open to making that that progress. So thanks so much for sharing everything that you're doing and all that your team has accomplished. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Absolutely. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.